may be seated. You have your Bible. Want to turn with me to John chapter 4 and verse 14. I want to take one word for a text, but we're going to cover most of this chapter tonight. Our one sentence, one verse for a text, but we're going to cover most of this chapter tonight. John chapter 4 and verse 14. If you have it, would you say amen? Amen. The scripture says, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. I want to talk for a few moments tonight on this subject, the miracle of the well. The miracle of the well. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? We love you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. And we're asking, Lord, that in the next few moments, you allow the word of God, Lord, just to open up and speak into our lives. Lord, let it touch us and let it impact us, Lord, in the precious name of Jesus. Would you say amen? I'm sure this is a story that many of you are familiar with. You've heard the story of the lady, the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, probably many, many times in your uh, years of church and Sunday school and so forth. But I want to start out by filling in a little bit of background so that you understand the cultural fabric that stands behind the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. First of all, Samaria was a Roman province of Palestine located between Judea to the south and Galilee to the north. It contained most of the territory of the old kingdom of Israel. Now, when I say the old kingdom of Israel, I'm talking about the split period of time when there were two kingdoms or two nations in Israel, Judah, composed of two tribes that had possession of Jerusalem, and then Israel, composed of the other ten tribes that did not have possession of the Temple Mount. And so that territory that once belonged to uh, the kingdom of Israel is the territory that is referred to in Scripture as Samaria. As a, as a result of the fact that Samaria was defeated uh, in 722 B.C., the nation of Israel fell. And most of the inhabitants of Israel were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And, and at, the, at that time, Judah was still, those two nations, or those two tribes and that nation was still standing. Now, it would fall later. But after the Assyrians conquered Israel, they settled Gentiles in Samaria to go work the land and inhabit their new possession. The problem is the Word of God tells us the Gentiles didn't worship God. And this was a land that had belonged to the people of God and the worship of God. And so the Bible said God sent lions in to punish them, to judge them. And so when word came back to the Assyrian emperor that lions were devouring the people and it was because of the fact that they weren't obeying the word of God, they weren't worshiping God, he went through his captives and selected a Jewish priest. And he sent that Jewish priest back to Samaria to teach the new residents there what God required of them in worship. It's the only way that they could stop the lions from coming in and, and destroying them. So the new settlers began to intermarry with the remains of the Jews that were left in the land. And over time, they began to consider themselves to be the true Israelites. They were mostly the descendants of the tribes of 
Ephraim and Manasseh, those are Joseph's two sons. And, and these some of them were Gentiles and some of them were Jews from those two tribes. And as they intermixed and intermingled and, and they, a bloodline develops as a Israelite dish, it's a mix of Gentile and Israelite blood. But they begin to consider themselves to be the true Israelites. However, just like the kingdom of Israel before them, their worship of God was always mixed with idolatry. 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 33 tells us that they feared the Lord and they served their own gods. It was a it was a strange time. It was a messed up period of time where these Samaritans who consider themselves to be true Israelites worshiped at the altar of God. But they also participated in idolatry, worshiping a plethora of false gods. They even went so far as to engage in human sacrifice. Nothing more ungodly. Amen. So over the next century, the kingdom of Judah attempted to bring Samaria and Judah into unity. Tried to bridge the gap there. And, and that, that culminated in the great religious reform under the boy king Josiah. Josiah came to be king in Judah at the age of eight. He ruled there for 31 years, and under Josiah's reformation, the people of Samaria and Judah joined together in Jerusalem. They held Passover celebrations there together, and the Samaritans were in some way incorporated back into the Jewish form of worship. But that renaissance or that reformation was cut short by the fall of Jerusalem in 621 B.C. when the nation of Judah fell just like the nation of Israel had fallen. Now, all these Jews go off to Babylonian captivity, and during Babylonian captivity, most of the territory of the kingdom of Judah was added to the province of Samaria. And the Samaritans developed their own truncated version of the Hebrew Bible. They called it the Samaritan Pentateuch. Now, if you know what the Pentateuch is, it's the first five books of the Old Testament. The, the uh, Hebrew Pentateuch is the first five books of the Old Testament. The Samaritan Pentateuch was very similar to the Hebrew Pentateuch. It, it, it was, it was uh, very similar to the more widely accepted Hebrew Bible, but there were some changes in it. The most significant change in the Samaritan Pentateuch was that it declared that the place uh, that God chose for his temple to be erected was not the, the mount there in Jerusalem, but rather it was Mount Gerizim. And so the Samaritans claimed that the rightful place for the temple to be was in Samaria. And they claimed that their version of the Pentateuch was the correct version. It was the original version. They believed that the Jews had corrupted true Judaism while under Babylonian captivity when they began to add the other books of the Old Testament to the first five and begin to add, rely heavily on rabbinic traditions. And, and they got the idea that, that Israel had gone off course and that they were the true Israelites. They were the true people of God. And to them, the temple in Jerusalem was a center for cultic false worship. Now, inevitably, the Babylonian worship or Babylonian captivity would come to an end. And whenever Jews began to return to the area, the Samaritans came into political and religious conflict with the returning Jews. 
great animosity developed between the two peoples to the extent that if you were a Jew in Jesus' day and someone called you a Samaritan, it was considered to be one of the gravest of insults. Guarding the laws of separation and temple worship, according to the Jews, the Samaritans were Gentiles, and they were treated as such. They were not allowed to uh, participate in, in temple worship, and intermarriage with them was forbidden, and socializing with them was greatly restricted. And, and it went so far as if you ate at a Samaritan's house, you could be, uh, you were considered ceremonially unclean, and you couldn't enter the temple. Amen. There was a great divide in between them, and that animos- animosity continued to escalate when in 400 B.C., 400 years before Christ, the Samaritans built a temple unto God on Mount Gerizim. And then they turned around and helped Jewish exiles in Egypt build another temple unto God at a place called Elephantine. And so during that intertestamental period, the 400 years before the New Testament begins, there was this conflict that was constantly raging between the Jews and the Samaritans. And they had the temple at Jerusalem, and they had the temple at Gerizim. And there was this, this we're, we're right in the way we worship. And then the Jews over here saying, no, no, we're right in the way we worship. It was a constant religious conflict. But during that period of time, a Jewish ruler by the name of John Hyrcanus invaded Samaria and utterly destroyed the temple and garrison. After that happened, Jews traveling between Galilee and Judea who passed through Samaria were frequently attacked by Samaritan mobs, robbed and beaten and left for dead. This is where the story comes that Jesus tells of the man on a journey through Samaria. And he's attacked and he's beaten and he's left for dead. This isn't just uh, a made-up account. This is the fabric of life in that, in that area. This is the way it was. So throughout the New Testament period, moving even past the time of Jesus, The violence continued to escalate until in the year 52 A.D. uh, There was a massacre of a group of Jewish pilgrims in Syria, uh, I mean Samaria, that resulted in the Jewish zealots invading and systematically wiping out whole Samaritan villages. Now, the Roman army would rise up and put down the violence, and they would execute leaders on both sides, but still that guerrilla warfare in between those two peoples persisted for many, many, many years. That's the background into which Jesus walks. It's against the backdrop of centuries of prejudice and hatred and violence and bloodshed jesus the scripture says in john chapter 4 that when the pharisees became alarmed about jesus's popularity he decided to move for time from judea to galilee and the scripture tells us as as it's laying this out in john chapter 4 and verse 4 it says and he must needs go through samaria the specific word use in that verse indicates that must need is, it's not just a turn of phrase. It's talking about a matter of obligation or coercion. It wasn't a simple choice. It was something Jesus had to do. Now, to understand the significance of that, the direct route from Judea to Galilee 
was a three-day journey through Samaria, and it was a very dangerous journey. And so Jews often took a longer route, took twice as long to go around Samaria to get from one place to the other. Given the level of animosity, given the threat of violence, the, the longer route was frequently the more prudent route. But Jesus said, I must need go. I, I'm not, I don't have a choice in the matter. I am compelled. Amen. Uh, there was no other way that he was going to go. There, there were other ways to get to Galilee. There were more safe routes to take. But Jesus was acting on a spiritual compulsion unknown to anyone but himself. He had a divine appointment to keep in Samaria. Aren't you thankful that God loves you enough, amen, to come and, and step into the messed up situations that you live in, the world that you're in, and all the, the trouble and the chaos, and, and, and when He could easily go around you, and it may even be safer to go around you, amen, He recognizes the need and says, I'm going to go where the need is. Amen? So when Jesus came to Jacob's well, it was on the outskirts of the village Sychar. And there he sent his disciples into the village to purchase food while he sat down to rest. You ever wondered how much food they were going to buy? That it needed all 12 of them? I, I doubt very seriously that, that there was going enough food that all the disciples were needed. But Jesus sent them all the way because he's setting the stage for his encounter with this woman who will soon arrive at the well. We'll pick up the story in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. It says, Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour, and there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were going away unto the city to buy Meat. So the Samaritan woman comes down to the well at about the sixth hour of the day. This is noontime. This is the very middle of the day. And she comes to fill her water jug. And Jesus asks her if she would give him something to drink. Now here's Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He's come to save this woman from the, the sin situation she finds herself caught in from a broken life of shame and, and, and people frowning upon her, looking down on her, being ostracized from her community. And when Jesus comes into her life, though, he begins his interaction with this woman by placing himself in an inferior position to her. He admits to her, I have a need that only you can provide. I don't have a bucket. I'll have a way to get water out of the well. It's the middle of the day, and it's awful hot. And there's water in the well, and I need a drink. It's not just an artificial device to, to initiate a conversation. It's very likely that Jesus is thirsty at this point and that he had no means to draw water from the well. We know that because the Samaritan woman will tell us that in the text. And so he, Jesus is here sitting on a well, and at the bottom of that well is cool, refreshing water. But he's thirsty. It has to be noted here that it is possible to sit on a well and be thirsty. Let me put it another way. It's possible to sit on a church pew in the presence of an almighty God 
when the grace and the glory of God is flowing through this place, when there's cool waters of refreshing, amen, and not avail yourself of what your soul so desperately needs. In our case, it's not the lack of a bucket. It's not the lack of a method to obtain the water. Many times it's, it's our apathy about our own spiritual condition. We just don't realize how bad we need what the presence of God has brought. Even into this house on a Wednesday night, I feel his touch right now. The anointing of the Holy Ghost is flowing through this place. And in his presence, the scripture said, Thou hast prepared a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And on that table is everything you need. Uh, if only you will avail yourself of it. Uh, there's spiritual refreshing. There's joy unspeakable. There's peace that passes understanding. Amen. There is the presence of, of an almighty God uh, that would touch you in an immeasurable way if you would just turn your heart to him tonight and say Lord I need a drink I need a drink but Jesus' simple request startled the woman social convention forbids that a man would speak to a woman in public and it, to make matters even worse they were alone at the well that has to be an awkward situation. Jesus, as a rabbi, as a Jew, is not supposed to be in the presence of the Samaritan woman, especially not alone together. But, and she can tell immediately from his accent and from his clothing that he is a Jew. And she tells us in Scripture that she, she knew the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. What are you doing asking me for water? She knew that a typical Jew would rather go thirsty, would rather sit on the well and be thirsty than to have a Samaritan use their water jug to get them water. But she was about to discover that Jesus isn't the typical Jew. Amen. Now, the Samaritan woman, she came to the well alone in the middle of the day. And that's wrong on several points. It's unusual in several different ways. First of all, the women of the village would usually go as a group to provide each other company and protection. They didn't go to the well alone. They, they had a big task in front of them. They had to transport enough water to fill their family's needs for the whole day. They carried them in large clay pots, which in the Greek were called eudria. I know this because I'm in Greek class right now. Amen. But they carried them in large clay pots that they balanced on their shoulders or their head. Every pot weighed about eight pounds per gallon. Think of how many gallons of water you might use in a day. It was a back-breaking task. There were multiple trips from the village to the well and back to the village. It, it, it took some time and it took some effort, and nobody does that in the middle of the day. Nobody does that in the heat of the day. 
That's the kind of thing you get up at the breaking of the day and in the cool of the day. And you know as well as I do, in August around here, there's not a whole lot of cool to the day. But if you're going to catch the cool of the day, it's going to happen the first 30 minutes of daylight, the first hour. It's going to be, it, you're going to be sweating by 8 o'clock in the morning. Amen? And so you got to get out there, and you got to get after it, and you got to get it done. And so the other women have already been to the well. They've already drawn their water. They've already gone back, and they did it to avoid the mid day sun not only that but according to a map of the region that was discovered in 1884 Sikar was a small village on the slope of Mount Ebal and it was about 3,000 feet north of the well more importantly Sikar had its own source of water there was a well in the village Yet the Samaritan woman walked more than a mile round trip to fetch water from Jacob's well. This, all of this provides the evidence that this woman is a social outcast. Likely, none of the other women in her village would have anything to do with her. She doesn't go to the well at the same time as they do because they look down their nose at her. Amen. She's a woman that you, you find out as the story unfolds, she's been married multiple times. The man she's living with now is not even her husband. She's that kind of woman, you know, the kind that they give side long glances and they talk about behind her back when she walks away. And, and she feels those eyes on her everywhere she goes. And so, to to keep from feeling ashamed and to keep from feeling uh, like she's an object of scorn. She just stays indoors until everybody else is done. And then she slips out. But she doesn't even go to the well at the center of the town where she might be noticed. But she goes out a back way and she slips off into the, the countryside and goes to Jacob's well where she might find a little privacy. But on this day, there's no privacy. There's Jesus sitting on the wall. Aren't you thankful that when you were trying to avoid everybody and everything, amen, when you were just saying, leave me alone, let me die. Just let me die in my sorrow and my sin. Just leave me alone and let me be. I've had all I can take uh, that Jesus didn't leave you alone, amen, that he didn't abandon you, that there he was sitting on the well, amen. Now, Jesus knows because he knows everything, the situation of this woman's life, but he doesn't confront her with the evidence. Instead, he treats her as if her gender doesn't matter, as if her ancestry doesn't matter, as if her social status doesn't matter, as if her questionable past and mistaken beliefs make absolutely no difference to him. Aren't you glad uh, that when Jesus comes to your life, uh, amen, he doesn't hold your past against you. He doesn't hold your ancestry against you. He doesn't hold your bad decisions and choices against you. Amen. He promised her that if she had known who he was, she would have asked of him, and he would have given her living water. But his promise did not come without condition. The condition was that she had to know him and ask him. The problem was she didn't know him, and she had no idea what to ask of. And at the most, she only had a vague idea of what her own need was. She knew she was broken. She was broken. 
she knew she needed fixing, but she didn't even know how to ask for the right thing to fix it. How often have we stood in the same place in the presence of a mighty God? I feel him in this house this evening who has spoken into this place and said, I'm willing to touch and I'm willing to, to move and I'm willing to quench your thirsty soul and extend it an invitation to come and drink. Uh, amen. But we went away unsatisfied simply because we didn't know or we didn't have the compulsion to ask. Sometimes it's that we, we, we're in a state of denial. I'm okay, preacher. Leave me alone. It'll be all right. I'll, I'll get over this. I'll, I'll come through this. I don't really need to. Uh, you know, I, there's no need for me to go to the altar and bawl and weep and cry and make a spectacle of myself. I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps. I want to tell you something, honey. Amen. You need sometimes that you get in the presence of God and the tears flow down your cheek uh, and the power of the presence of God washes you from the inside out. There are some things you encounter spiritually. You're never going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, you got to humble yourself in the presence of God and let God do the exalting uh, and let God be the one that lifts you up. The meeting between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well was far from accidental. Every step was intended to reveal Jesus to her that he might meet her need for salvation. But in spite of that being his goal, he did not reveal himself to her until she was ready to receive the revelation. The revelation of Jesus came in incremental steps rather than sudden enlightenment. And most of those steps were met by resistance. She fought him every step of the way. The scripture, I'll go back to the story in verse 9, says, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me a drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? I've always looked at that passage and wondered why it is that she, she thinks that the water Jesus is talking about could be in that well. I can tell you the answer to that. Unlike other wells which get their water from cisterns or rain-filled caverns, Jacob's well was a shaft about 100 feet deep that tapped into an underground stream. And because the water there was always flowing, was constantly fresh, it was called living water. Living water is not stagnant. Living water's not dead. It's flowing water. So her initial question, she, she probably didn't understand exactly what Jesus was saying. When he said, if you'd asked me, I would have given you the drink of living water. She's thinking, the problem is, buddy, you don't have a bucket. And the living water's at the bottom of the well. But Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. 
but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman saith, the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. So Jesus makes it clear that he's not talking about the water in the well. The water that he's offering, whoever drinks of the water of the well will thirst again. But the water that Jesus has come to give, those that drink of it will never thirst again. As a matter of fact, the water that he's going to give is a well in and of itself springing up uh, unto eternal life. And finally, it dawns on this woman uh, that this is real. There's something stirred in her, a hunger in her soul, uh, a deep thirsting on the inside for a change in her life. She recognizes I've been looking all my life uh, for something to change my direction. uh, To change my course. uh, And here it is. That's what I need. Sir, give me this water that I thirst not. She said, neither come hither to draw. Her longing not to come hither to draw speaks of her desire to change. She wanted to leave behind. A daily humiliation. She wanted to leave behind the constant reminder of how far she had fallen, of how wrecked her life was, of how broken her dreams were. She was ready for change. But Jesus pushes the limits a little further. First, he demonstrates supernatural knowledge of her life causing her to see that he's a prophet. He tells her things about herself that nobody, no stranger for sure could know. Things about her that no man could know. But as he did that, she, it, it caused her to put her guard up once again. And she began to try to divert attention from herself. And she turned to the age-old theological debate between the Samaritans and the Jews. John chapter 4 and verse 20 says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. That word ye is plural, and it indicates that it's, it's actually the, the plural in the second person. It's you all. And she's indicating that uh, Jesus is just like the other Jews. All of you Jews... You all say that, that you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. In other words, she's saying, I've heard your old arguments before. I've been through this before. You've got nothing new for me. Amen. I recognize what you're doing. I thought there for a minute maybe there was something real happening here, but I recognize what you're doing. And Jesus went on in verse 21 and says, Woman, believe me. The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such 
to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So putting aside symbolism, Jesus directly responds to her challenge. He tells her that the Samaritan beliefs were wrong. That ages-old debate, Jesus settles it in just a minute. He says, you don't even know what you worship. Amen. You were taught this by an old Jewish priest in, in a period of captivity. You don't even have an understanding of the great God that you worship. But we know who we worship because salvation is of the Jews. But just as soon as he steps into that divisive context and he he, he lays down the law as far as the age-old argument. He surrounds that statement with a powerful message about true worship. And he assures her that the long-standing argument between the Samaritans and the Jews really doesn't matter in the long term because the day is coming. He's ushering in the hour when both Jews and Samaritans would worship God in spirit and in truth. There wouldn't be a journey to a particular mountain somewhere. Men and women would worship Him freely anywhere they were in spirit and in truth. And then it begins to dawn on the woman who this must be. And in John chapter 4 and verse 25, the woman saith, saith unto Him, I know that Messiah's cometh which is called Christ and when he has come he will tell us all things and Jesus saith unto her I that speak unto thee am he you probably read that a hundred times but I don't know if you've ever realized the significance of it the Samaritan woman is a half-breed Jew Gentile she, she's not of the lineage of Abraham She's not under the covenant of Abraham. She's a heretic, if you will. That This is a false religious system. Jesus has just told her that. But she is more privileged than everyone else who came into contact with Jesus during his ministry before the cross. Although others testified of who he was, Jesus seldom, if ever, revealed his identity as a long-awaited Messiah. In fact, this case would be one of the very few places in Scripture that you can find Jesus outwardly saying, admitting, I am He. I am the Messiah. You've got to ask yourself, why? Why does Jesus leave Jerusalem, go to Samaria, and find this messed up woman with a broken life to reveal Himself to her, to reveal to her what He hasn't revealed to all the Jews to those who study the word looking for the Messiah. But he hasn't told them. But he goes and tells this Samaritan woman. The reason, or probably multiple reasons, but the theological differences that caused the Jews to hate the Samaritans are what made her so uniquely suited to be among the first to really know who he was. Because the Samaritans knew only the first five books of the Bible. They didn't have the fullness of the rich prophetic vision of the Messiah that, that comes in the prophetic books and later on in Scripture. All they knew about the Messiah was, one, that he would crush the head of Satan. And two, that he would be a prophet like Moses. 
That's all they knew about him. They didn't have a whole bunch of other preconceived notions about who the Messiah was or what he was going to do. The Jews, on the other hand, because of the prophecies concerning the second coming of the Messiah or the second coming of Jesus, were expecting the Messiah to be a political and military figure who would come in and decimate Rome and restore the throne of David. That's what they expected. They weren't ready to receive a Messiah who proclaimed a revolution of the soul instead of a political revolution. They weren't ready to receive a Messiah who told them to love their enemies. But the Samaritans didn't have those preconceived notions. So the Samaritan woman is the perfect candidate to see Jesus for who he really is. Now there are certain truths that can't be taught they have to be caught there's a depth that cannot be merely accepted it has to be discovered Jesus in revealing himself to the Samaritan woman is using a technique that he also used with Nicodemus in the previous chapter of John he begins with a spiritual statement couched in allegorical terms and in Nicodemus's case it was uh, you got to be born again Nicodemus said, how in the world can you be a man entering his mother's womb and be born a second time? In the case of the Samaritan woman, he, he talks about living water, and she immediately makes a connection to the water in Jacob's well, but then he tells her, that's not the water I'm talking about. So he takes these heavenly ideas, these huge, incomprehensible theological ideas, and he puts them in language. He puts them in an allegory, in a language that, that the people can understand. The Samaritan woman and Nicodemus made the same mistake. They took his statements literally. So then Jesus expanded the allegory. He expressed it in more direct terms, but he maintained the symbolism. This water that I'm going to give you. Amen. If you drink from it, you'll never thirst again. For it's a well springing up unto eternal life. He, was, he wasn't obscuring the message by putting it in that language. What he was doing was using language that they could fathom to paint a picture that was beyond their imagination. Taking that, and Jesus does this often in his ministry, taking these very high ideas and putting them in very simple terms like the, the sower and the seed and the field, that the different kinds of ground and where the seed falls and, and takes strong, deep spiritual truth. Good preacher could preach on that parable for four or five weeks in a row and not cover it all. Jesus puts it down in these little bite-sized bite segments, these pieces that are understandable. And he, he, he lays out deep spiritual truth. And that's how come the woman comes to the realization of who Jesus is because she begins to grasp as he unfolds in her presence, as he unfolds through his words uh, what he came to do. Amen. Words can't express the power of the Holy Ghost to meet an individual's needs. They can't begin to tell you how rich it is uh, to be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, to have living water well up inside of you, to spring up uh, a well of living water unto eternal life. Words Words can't communicate just how rich that is. <coughs> Neither can words adequately communicate the depth of our need that we have for him. But thirst is a good metaphor. Amen. 
when you're thirsty that nothing else matters. If you get really thirsty, nothing else will satisfy. Oh, there is a blessing that comes from the presence of God that's like nothing else in this world. And it's a part of you that cries out for something that nothing in this world can do for you. Amen. That's the power of the Holy Ghost. Uh, And I come to tell you in this place uh, on a Wednesday night, the miracle of the whale is the miracle of new life. Uh, It's the promise uh, that there's a stream uh, of living water that you can tap into into from anywhere. There's a river flowing through this place tonight, uh, a river of living water. And if you just tap into it, there's strength, there's refreshing, there's joy unspeakable and full of glory in the presence of Jesus. I want you to know on a Wednesday night that Jesus still offers living water to anyone who knows him and asks of him. That's what he said. If you knew me and you asked uh, how many know who Jesus is, the only thing stopping you from drinking is whether or not you're asking. The only thing stopping you from taking a deep drink of refreshing Holy Ghost presence of God in your life is whether or not you're asking. If you leave thirsty tonight, it'll only be because you didn't ask. One final passage of Scripture, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 6. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountains of the water of life freely if you're thirsty Jesus said I'm going to give you freely I'm not going to charge anything I'm not going to require anything amen your enemy is going to step in and tell you all the reasons why you can't drink from the well you're not qualified. You don't deserve it. Your history and your past rules you out. You got so much garbage and dirt in your life uh, that you don't deserve to drink uh, from the well. Let me tell you something. The wonderful thing about mercy is that you never deserve it. Mercy is not given based on your character. Mercy is not given based on your condition. Mercy isn't given based on your accomplishments. Uh, Mercy is given based on the character of the one giving the mercy. If you forgive someone who doesn't deserve it, it says more about you than it does about the individual that you've forgiven. Your character is where mercy springs from. Uh, So when you come into the presence of God uh, and you need uh, a touch from God uh, and the enemy begins to tell you, you don't deserve it, you're not worthy of it, you messed up too many times, uh, you failed him too many times, uh, you need to remember mercy isn't based uh, on what I've done. Uh, Mercy isn't based on where I've been. Uh, Mercy isn't based on my history and my story. Mercy is based on the goodness of my God. And he's a merciful God. The miracle of the well is that you tonight can drink from springs of living water 
whether you deserve it or not. The miracle of the well is that Jesus went out of his way on a dangerous journey to go find one Samaritan woman whose life was broken and reveal himself to her so she could drink from a well of living water. And the same Jesus who went out of his way to go to Samaria, he's in this house tonight. And he's calling men and women to come and drink from a well of living water. Would you stand with me, Brother Ryan? I, I'd like you to come to the music. That's the miracle of the well. The miracle of the well is that there is a source, life-giving, refreshing source that you can tap into wherever you are, regardless of what's going on in your life regardless of the history and the past and all your faults and failures and shortcomings, there is a well of living water and it's flowing through this. I feel the presence of the Lord right now. I believe God's calling somebody under the sound of my voice. It's the middle of the week. I know that there's a busy work week ahead of you and there's a busy work week already behind you, but you've come into this place tonight and you're dry and dehydrated and your spirit is thirsty uh, and there's something deep down on the inside uh, that's crying out, uh, give me a drink. Uh, I need a refreshing. Uh, and I come to tell somebody in this house uh, on a Wednesday night, the presence of God uh, is flowing through this place. Uh, he wants to refresh you. He wants to lift you you up. Uh, he wants to encourage you in his spirit. You already know who he is. The question is, are you willing to ask? I wonder if you'd step out of your pew tonight. I wonder if you could find a place in an altar if you just ask him, Lord Jesus, I need a drink.